Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you doing this week? I'm still haven't worked on my uh, snappy introduction, but um, uh, it's been a busy week. There's been a lot of activity at the beginning of this year. So, uh, it certainly has. has. 2021 is in force. Mm-hmm. Six weeks in already. I know. Uh, okay, so this week uh, we're going to take a look at AWS in space. Uh, we're also going to discuss uh, data lakes and the technology behind them. And then finally, we're joined by Monica Stonku, who is uh, going to talk with us about diversity and inclusion uh, in her role with the Royal Academy of Engineers. We recorded that earlier, and it's fascinating stuff. So stay it tuned is. for that. Looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, so. AWS in space. This is an article I turned up based on some uh, some comments by Clinton Crozier, who is the director of aerospace and satellite solutions, and he was really pumping up how AWS, Amazon Web Services, are really making not new moves but further moves into the space industry. Yeah, because um, there was an original announcement, which probably you know, was under the uh, radar in June last year where Amazon um, talked about this setting up of a, 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 you know, a satellite capability or focus more on satellite and space. And it started to started to form a narrative, I think, from the from there, because obviously with um, Jeff's announcement that, you know, no longer CEO of AWS, it's uh, it's Andy Jassy who was the head of AWS is becoming Amazon oh. CEO. Ah, yes, um, and and so they've got a link there with Blue or- Blue Origin, mm. which is obviously a key part of that kind of whole conundrum. And Elon Musk, you know, uh, obviously both mega rich people who have ambitions to um to pl- use their money to play in space, really. And I think there's going to be a lot more um. A lot more focus on that coming forward. Mm. I mean, it's it's really this generation that has capitalized on commercial space exploration. I know satellites have been up there for a long time. Things like um, GPS relies entirely on satellites and nuclear clocks and things like that. But it seems like in the last 15 to 20 years, yeah, these almost Bond villain-esque billionaires are firing up all sorts yeah and i know elon as well has just announced or in a patent they filed um it looks like they're looking towards um budget uh communications so budget telephones and internet access and things like that so yeah yeah and i think the interesting thing there like i said with 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 the aws announcement is that they've got the computing power um i mean we looked at some of their uh their conference at the end of last year and one of the things that was plainly pointed out in that, that, you know, AWS were barely a, a company um, 15, 16 years ago, and now they're the uh, in the top five enterprise IT companies in the world. Mm. So it's a huge step forward that they've made in that kind of computing area. And maybe the domestic user thinks the more of the kind of marketplace for buying this and the other, but definitely in our world, you, now, AWS are a huge player in the cloud computing and the, the hybrid computing world. Um, and it, it just kind of makes sense that you're going to start using that power of computing with the AI 
um, with the kind of ambitions to go to space and everything that that means, really. Um, and yeah, it's a it's, it's a brand new horizon, as in their blue origin type of approach. Um, but it does open up all kinds of questions about how do you create a market, you know, in space. Um, I know there are some space regulations out there about and agreements across the globe about how you use space. Um, but these guys now um, are really leading the way of that commercial enterprise and the role of the likes of the national um, space agencies like NASA are becoming um, a part of, say, an open ecosystem where privatization is occurring within that industry as well. Mm. So, yeah, it's a huge, huge endeavor, yeah. um, really. Well, I know that I, I just, uh, the nationalized space agencies are they're sort of dependent on who's in charge of governments at that time, whether that's a focus for them. And then because, you know, it's nothing happens in a year, nothing happens in four years. So budgeting for a nationalized space agency is very difficult. But for private enterprise, you can set a goal for 10, 15, 20 years and work towards it without worrying about, well, there's going to be a change in administration and that focus is going to be pulled. So, yeah. Well, this this is another geopolitics situation here because the rise of um, corporations um, is huge at the moment, isn't it? And we've seen that uh, through COVID, the amount of money, and many of these businesses have got more money um, and more of a global reach than the governments themselves. And that does put them in a very powerful position, ultimately, and breaks down those national borders that I think some politicians are rapidly trying to build up as well. So... Um, it doesn't make sense in some regard that you've got the corporations really dominating the globe and policies across the globe. Yeah, politicians are going back into their shells trying to create national boundaries across this type of thing. What's right and what's wrong is a different thing because obviously corporations with all the money and all the power um, and without actually having to have a uh, any real um, need to support society as such. I know one thing I think with Microsoft, they've, they've uh, moved into that area. But yeah, it's an interesting thing that they're using their billions to the, for the space race. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And like you say, I think there can be an argument made for, is that, I do, yeah, I don't know if morality even comes into it. Maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but um, they're pushing forwards. Obviously they see, and they see a benefit. They see that there's going to be some sort of capital to be gained. So, yeah, it looks like they're going all guns. But there's huge, there's huge resources out there, aren't mm. there? And I think that's probably the end goal here. There's lots and lots of resources outside of Earth. Even the moon's got lots of resources. So, you know, maybe it becomes a great big mining exercise ultimately. Yeah, well, I did see there was an image of a, a rare... A rare mineral or a rare element asteroid that they think mm. based on tests has enough in it that it's sort of the entire world's economy times about 70,000 or something crazy like that. So yeah, it's, there's money to be made out there. It's just, how do you do it? Yeah. I don't think it's all um, altruistic. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Well, fascinating stuff. And we will, I'm sure come back to space soon. Uh, let's have a look at data lakes.
So yeah, um, data lakes. Well, I think it all were part of the uh, computing power of the future and everything that we've kind of talked about with the, the space is that the need for data. We have an overwhelming amount of data um, around us um, and how we use that data to create information and is a key part of that. Um, and data lakes have really risen through the need to be able to make better sense out of the data that, that we require. But as with all things, and the same word as like cloud, data lake is a bit of a bit of a marketing phrase, which doesn't really mean anything apart from creating an image in somebody's mind around, oh, look at all that data washing around. <laughs> um, whether that's a bad or a good image, who knows? But ultimately it's about being able to store both structured um, and unstructured data with a large capacity for storing that data and a scale to be able to match mm. that. Um, and, and traditionally, the types of databases that have been used in the past are predominantly there to support applications. So SQL-based databases are the most were the most common types of databases, um, and many businesses generated different types of database systems around that. But applications could easily be built on top of an SQL database for a few reasons. Mm. Uh, one of them was so that you can create... Um, a consistent data model, a structured data model, an entity relationship between one entity and another. And those relationships could be constrained. So you couldn't put the wrong bit of data into a table if it wasn't already contained within another table. Right. So you would be able to create rules around those structures and therefore you could create a level of integrity. Mm -hmm. And that's what applications needed at the time. They needed to know with a level of confidence, if you entered a piece of data into the database, that data wouldn't become a zombie. It wouldn't be lost within this, within this framework. And the fact that, that once you'd entered into that framework, it had a relationship to the other data within it. Right. And the reasons for that were because of some uh, performance, because if you had individual tables and things like that, you could create indexes around them and you'd be able to, you'd be able to store data quickly and you'd be able to retrieve data quickly. Um, but that was fine to a level, but the structure itself was what became the problem. It became restrictive, I guess. Yeah, you needed to use the data in a different way. You didn't just need it just so the application could function. Mm -hmm. And with the AI or data analytics, you wanted to, to extract that data out into a different format, join it with other data from other applications, and you wanted to try and make more sense of it. And the first approaches around that were using um, reporting engines, things like a, where I started really was with the likes of business objects, which was a, a way of creating a what they called in business objects as a universe. <laughs> there was a schema that tried to make sense of these underlining data and then create these objects that you could use in the reporting of the information. At the same time, you could use it to translate and create some calculations of it and create some pretty reports. Um, but it was fine, but you're still left with all of these kind of weird little scenarios that when you're trying to join data, you'd create these kind of valleys of information that made made no sense, really. So on one side of the valley, you would have a, a particular data set that would join to one piece of data. On the other side of the valley, you had all of the data of, 
possibilities. Well, the trouble with that means that everything can be related to anything. Mm. Um, and these were the kind of um, tricks that you kind of had to work around, really. And the other problem was that to get data out of these uh, SQL databases, you generally use something called extract, transform, and load. Right. So you used to extract the data out of the database, used to transform it into something that would align more to what you wanted to, um, and then you would load it into another database. Mm -hmm. But if you can imagine that kind of architecture, trying to extract data out of two, three, four, 10, 20, 100 databases or even more, and trying then extracting and loading them and trying to make sense of them. And then the, the alignment of the updates would be slightly out of sync and this data wouldn't match that. So there was this stage when people were trying to come up with these very convoluted ways of being able to manage data by shifting data from one place to another. Mm. And they really weren't very successful. <laughs> Um, and in the meantime, we have the rise of the internet, not just the internet in its early form, but the internet of data, really, um, because the original internet was the internet of web pages. Um, but what we've moved on to now is that, that, that fact we have data everywhere, and the data is still quite unstructured and doesn't really um, align to many standards with it, but it, it does, in the end, become a way of being able to get data from the internet. And the internet kind of demanded this rise of more of a data-centric architecture mm. um, built on what we've talked about with the APIs to be able to access that data in a known way, a known schema. So the schema is no longer inside the database as such. The schema is built within the API constructs that you're querying from one application to another. Mm example so that whole different approach required a different set of technologies um, and they had been dabbled with before document dbs or object dbs had been kind of touted before but it really required this separation of this uh, this application centric world um, into an internet type based technology for these these new database technologies to rise um, and what that means is we kind of in our in our world, we've, we've ended up with two main types of databases. Ones that are very good at handling event and time series data, mm -hmm. and they can store you know petabytes of information very, very quickly and underline a lot of that kind of technology used by um, Facebook and uh, LinkedIn or whatever it is. Um, you know, they, they need to be able to capture when somebody enters something. So you're always capturing events that are occurring right. and trying to all those events in a in an event way or a time series way so you've got this kind of history of what those things were and then you've got a way of being able to handle um, large unstructured pieces of data and what i mean by that is things like video or images or or um, um, files that have just got this kind of binary coding within them or something like this and you need to be able to capture those 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 bits of data and then you need to be able to create some kind of um, not so much a relationship, but you've got to be able to link those data, those datas together, not in such a strong way as we used to with SQL data. Um, but SQL still plays a, a role within this this whole setup. Mm. So it's a bit like when we used to record video or record music. We used to first of all have it on tape, and then we had it on 
we had on uh, DVD or CD, and now we can store it on the memory. These different types of databases are still formats are still available. They're just now becoming more specialized for what you need them to yeah. do. So if you want a bit of structure and you want control, still SQL databases are the best thing. Mm -hmm. If you want to be able to uh, you know, store data in a more flexible data schema um, and store different types of data, then your, your document DB or your NoSQL databases are great. And then we've also said, yeah, the time series type of databases that allow you to do the analytics. And a data lake really is a combination of all those different database technologies working together to achieve your end goal. And that might be to be able to produce some kind of AI algorithm so you can do analysis on all that information. You can create correlations between all that information. And you're not worried about so much managing of the information, extracting, transforming, loading it. You're accepting that's the type of information you're going to receive. Mm -hmm. And then you try and make sense of that information. And that's where that's one of the main uh, strengths of cloud networking is you then have these, yeah, you don't you don't have to have discrete sections of this is where this data goes, this is where this data goes. Uh, from the user side, you can just access all of that different functionality um, without, yeah, more easily, I guess. Yeah, and it's there's a, there are a load of other things behind it, things like um, JSON uh, structures and, like I said, more object-orientated programming uh, approaches that have driven us in that way. And um, there are still some challenges with mm. it. That means trying to extract data out of a NoSQL database in an SQL-like way is more difficult than doing it from an SQL database. But those problems are, are becoming few and further between. Um, and most people are then focusing on how do you extract the information? How do you extract the value out of the data? That's where now the focus is, really. Um, why are you storing that data? We have data everywhere, and we, we, we'll, we'll talk in the, in the upcoming podcasts about the kind of open data principles. Um, we talk about the Internet of Things. You know, all of these things, we, we're going to store more and more data exponentially, um, and that's great, but to get value from that information is the key thing, not just storing that data. Mm, fascinating. All right, I think it's time we uh, move on to our interview. So in this Atlas uh, podcast interview section, we are joined by Monica Stanku, who is Diversity and Inclusion Manager at Royal Academy of Engineering. Welcome, Monica. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, if you would like to yeah, give a bit of an introduction to yourself, how you got into the position that would be fantastic yeah so um as you said my name is monica i work for the royal academy of engineering um for uh, your listeners who have never heard of the academy so we are the we are a charity and our mission is to harness the power of engineering to build a sustainable society and an inclusive economy that works for everyone so in collaboration with our fellows and partners we're growing talent and developing skills for the future, um, fund a really innovative uh, research and build global partnerships. And we also influence policy and engage um, the public. So I'm part of the DNI team. I lead our internal program, which 
focuses on making sure that we apply diversity and inclusion best practices and that we lead by example. And I also lead an external program. And this one um, uh, focuses on the diversity and inclusion work that we do with professional engineering institutions and the Science Council through our diversity and inclusion progression framework. So the framework is a maturity matrix, which helps professional bodies see where they are on their diversity and inclusion journey. We've just launched the first version, so we are really excited about that. And just to note that we've developed this tool in partnership with the Science Council and with feedback for, for professional bodies. So this is a tool uh, created um, by them and for them. That'd be great. I mean, uh, maybe we can share that link on the podcast. Yeah, I think it'd be good to get that out there. Yeah, have a we will, break. of course, yeah. Um, how, stepping back a bit, how did you get into uh, get into working with the Royal Institute? What was the, what, what happened before that that led you to here? Uh, well, so um, my um, experience is sort of a blend of diversity, inclusion and international affairs. Um, so having grown up in Romania, uh, you can hear that in my accent, uh, and then having the opportunity to study and work in six major cities around the world, I, I sort of learned firsthand that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So my mission really is to design workplaces that work for everyone and that allow everyone to reach their full potential and also link diversity and inclusion to business success, because I think um, you can't have excellence without diversity and inclusion. Um, so um, I actually started off by studying American studies uh, for my bachelor's degree. And then um, I got a series of um, scholarships and um, got uh, the chance to do my master's degree in women's history in New York City at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, and after after that, I was invited to become a visiting scholar at Columbia University uh, and did a series of internships at the Romanian Parliament, the New York Council for the Humanities, the United Nations, um, and also worked in international affairs at the European Medicines Agency. So you might have heard of the European Medicines Agency in the last few months. So they are the EU agency responsible for human and animal health. Uh, and they're basically the ones responsible for approving uh, medicines and all, all those um, drugs, life-saving drugs um, in Europe. Um, and I've also worked actually in diversity and inclusion for, for Roche, which is a pharma company, um, and um, Sodexo, which is a big um, French facilities management company. And it was really amazing actually, particularly to work um, for, for Sodexo because they are one of the best um, organizations out there when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So I felt like I really, really learned from, from the best. Yeah, that's mm. great. It's great to have a good uh, exemplar to actually see how it can work, I guess. And then... Yeah. It gives you the ideas on how that can be used in many businesses uh, moving forward. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, you know, um, one of the great things I think about the Academy uh, is that we don't think about diversity and inclusion just from a people sort of HR perspective, but we think about applying a diversity and inclusion lens to absolutely everything that we do. So that's about of course, our HR processes, how do how we recruit um, our culture, how we relate to one another, um, but also um, how, you know, how we apply diversity and inclusion to our events and making sure that everybody has the same experience if they um, come to one of, you know, if one of the events at the academy or apply diversity and inclusion lens 
to uh, our programs and uh, our various grants, making sure that the language that we use um, is as inclusive as possible and that we really um, uh, make sure that everybody that walks to the door of the academy feels like this is the place for them and this is where um, uh, excellence and diversity and inclusion are celebrated. Mm, I, well, I've been up to the academy a couple of times for various conferences and things like that. It's a, it's a very nice uh, place to visit. Um, like I said, not huge, but um, got that kind of lovely London grandeur about it, which is always yeah. nice to indulge in. <laughs> um, so from an engineering point of view, um, okay, so you've been involved with some some various companies and businesses and things like that. So what what, what do you see those biggest challenges are for engineering because some of the statistics you hear about mm. maybe the inclusion of women in in engineering or even in software development um, I mean they're not great are they they're in the sort of 20 25 percent inclusion um, yeah. Um, yeah we definitely have a diversity deficit um, in engineering uh, so we know that women represent 50 percent of the UK population but only but only about like 13% of uh, the engineering workforce. And that's one of the lowest numbers in Europe. So if you look at Bulgaria, for instance, um, around 30% of their engineering workforce is represented by women. So we clearly still have uh, a lot to do on that front. When we think about um, uh, people from a black, Asian or ethnic minority background, they're actually overrepresented when it comes to studying engineering. So they represent about 25% of those studying engineering. But once they graduate, they're actually less likely to get an offer compared to um, their white counterparts, their white colleagues. Mm. Um, so definitely more to do. Um, and we also have um, what I call an inclusion gap. Um, so a, a few years ago at the Academy, we've done um, a research um, study. We, we wanted to look at how inclusive the engineering culture really is. So we found that uh, women feel less included than men. People from a, a Black, Asian or ending minority background feel less included than their white colleagues. And also that you know, people that ha have a disability feel less included than people don't have a disability mm. uh, and that actually was uh, where we found the biggest gap um that's so interesting because there's, there's nothing to hold back that is there? especially in the it space there's there's um i mean we're all working from home at the moment and therefore access to the internet and to be able to do programming or whatever it is is really accessible to anybody and everybody from anything isn't it so um um it, it, it does require some different takes on on the way we approach it um and yeah we've experienced this ourselves as as a global business we know certain countries are far more um productive for whatever reason in this and we we got our ats colleagues in ats turkey which have a far far um more diverse workforce um, and the same in Italy and things like that. So yeah, the the, the UK, I guess, is quite represent. Our business is also representative of the the general situation in the UK as well, which um, we're we're actively working to try and change. And it'd be uh, um, interesting from that point of view. Um, what, what from you, Alex? Have you got any? Uh, well, I thought it would be interesting 
having worked in various different diversity and inclusion roles in various different companies, I know you said you had some exemplars there as well, uh, what recommendations would you have for other organizations? What steps can they take sort of today and then in the short term and in the more long term um, to promote a more diverse and inclusive workplace? Um, so I think there are uh, a lot of things that organizations can do. We know that the business case for diversity and inclusion has been well approved um, so far. Um, so uh, we really need to do more around that. And um, I usually recommend having a very data-driven um, approach to diversity and inclusion. So it's important that you actually collect your diversity data to measure progress, see what's working, and see what's not working, um, then I think it's very important to look at your entire processes and policies and understand where you are and make plans for where you like to be. Um, so for instance, you know, like you need to look at your recruitment processes and um, see if the language that you're using in your job ads uh, is inclusive. Are you using many, too many, you know, words that's like competitive or gravitas, which might put off um, maybe women? Um, or um, are you really highlighting the fact that you offer flexible working? Because um, that's something that is very important to a lot of people, especially now. So um, mm. um Diversity and inclusion professionals, women, carers, people with disabilities, they've been advocating for flexible working for decades now. Uh, and we, it took a pandemic to, to show us that this is something that uh, we can all actually um, implement very easily uh, if there is a will. Mm. So yeah, hi highlight those um, flexible working opportunities, highlight your development opportunities, um, encourage people to um, um, tell you if they need any reasonable adjustments during the interview to make sure that they are able to perform at their best. And uh, don't be afraid about reasonable adjustments. Uh, most of the times it's uh, something that is very easy to do or free. So it can be as easy as, you know, making sure that um, the timing uh, works uh, for somebody. Mm -hmm. um, also, from a, you know, from a religious perspective, think about uh, dates when you are um, organizing your interview so they don't clash with any major holidays. I think um, it's very easy to, to take, um, you know, this sort of thing for granted when you're a Christian, when you're working in a, in a country that... Uh, plans, uh, everything around um, our own uh, uh, holidays, but it's something that we also need to keep in mind. Um, and also when, when people actually get through the door, are we creating an environment where everybody can succeed? Are we creating an environment where people can speak up and uh, really reach their full potential? And yeah. it's very, yeah, it's very easy to, to do that as well. Like we need to encourage people. We need to give people the opportunity to feedback um, and to raise concerns and not be afraid to raise those concerns. And also you, you talked about the gap um, when people are in university, um, moving through that kind of the education process towards, edu towards uh, manufacturing or engineering. Um, we've seen that also. We were talking to Svetan from Nottingham University um, a few weeks ago, and he's said before to me that many of the brightest students he has 
um, often are attracted more to the city rather than into engineering, even though they finish, you know, with a first class yeah. master's degree in engineering, they're soon whisked off. I guess there's also how how do we promote an image within um, engineering that is attractive to um, more people? Yeah, definitely. I think engineering sort of has an image problem in the UK compared to uh, maybe other countries. Um, I think in the UK, when we when we think of an engineer, we usually um, think of um, a man in in a hard hat and a yellow uh, hard hat in the construction side. Uh, <laughs> and actually, engineering is a lot more than that. Um, and uh, maybe that's uh, something that we need to do um, uh, more of. So uh, at the academy, we've actually um, have an academy, uh, uh, sorry, a campaign called This is Engineering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what I was referring to. I was hoping yeah. you're going to bring it up because the, the, if you look for the hashtag This is Engineering, there's some great examples of videos and things like that which present it in a different line. Yeah, so this is a, a campaign target, targeted at young people um, and the goal is to challenge uh, maybe p- misconceptions of uh, engineering and uh, show uh, role models and to encourage the next generation to really go into engineering because um, you know, if you want to change the world, you should become an engineer. They play- <laughs> <laughs> the, the scientists get all the glory. The engineers have to be the science, don't they? <laughs> well, engineering is one of the oldest professions in the world, right? They build the world around us. They play such a huge role in advancing um, uh, progress, social and economic progress. They 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 build um, roads, buildings, um, the digital infrastructure that we re- rely on, especially right now. The, the the system that we are using right now to record this podcast <laughs> has engineers behind it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So um, uh, yeah, it's a. I think working at the academy really made me understand um, how amazing this um, profession really is and how valuable engineers are. Um, for, for anything that's made is engineered that's yeah. the reality of it even from the bottled water all the way through to the vaccine the, all these things are there, there is engineering involved in the production of these things so yeah you could whenever i talk to people about it you, you just basically say what do you do there well look you know almost look at anything you touch or use or build or, or is being engineered and manufactured Um, just materialize (laughs) but uh yeah interesting yeah and i think martin and i have discussed previously on the podcast that other things like science is now very good at speaking outwards Mm. engineering manufacturing tends to be very good at talking to itself but not presenting that so it sounds like things like this is engineering those programs putting it out there uh, are very positive moves uh, definitely. Um, I think working in partnership uh, is so important. Um, one organization cannot change uh, everything, but if we all uh, work together, then we can really make a change. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> okay, I, I'm looking at the time. I think yeah. we might have to wrap up soon, unless Martin has any other no, questions. No, I think it's great. That was a really good um, good talk, and when we talk about engineering, I get, get quite... Um, yeah, excited about what we do, but um, <laughs> we need to go and tell the world more about it. Yeah, so. okay. yeah. please do promote our This Is Engineering uh, videos to, to get more, more people excited about engineering because this is 
uh, truly um, an amazing uh, profession. We absolutely will. Thank you so much for joining us, Monica. Thank you. So that's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, As always, I have a quote for you. I thought I would go for a classic today, um, thinking about space travel and the journey it takes to get there. This is from Lao Tzu, 4th century BCE, uh, and he says, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I was thinking, you know, the Wright brothers, not even a generation ago, and now we're talking about business in space. (laughs) Big journeys, single steps. Yeah, we are just on the single step, aren't we? We always look uh, thinking now is 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 how uh, how advanced we are, but actually now we're barely advanced at all. You know, we've got so much more we can be doing with the, the power of all this information we're collecting, and we're just at the foot of the uh, mountain on this. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in ten, twenty years' time. Absolutely. All right. Thanks very much, Martin. See you next time. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.